Well, I'm going to go to a topic that I don't know that I've ever preached on before, to a passage I know I've never preached on before. There are some passages that are real easy to preach about. Romans chapter 5. There's like 40 sermons in Romans chapter 5. You do the parables. There's all kind of great stories. You look at 1 Corinthians 7 and you go, don't think we're going to preach on that one. Because it's a little too real. It's a little too uh, right where we live. And we'd rather church just be about coming in and singing hallelujah and don't tell me anything about how to adjust my personal life. Let me just be spiritual and go out like I came in. Paul says, and he's dealing with the church at Corinth, and by the way, I don't have time to go into all the things I would love to share with you today, but you got to always understand context when you're reading scripture. What's the background? What's being said there? And there's numerous places to help you. If you'd like to know more, come talk to me sometime, and I'll give you connections, even online for free, where you can go look up things and, and get understanding. The church at Corinth were some of the most dysfunctional people of, of their generation, of their culture, of their time, really messed up. The, the, the church was dysfunctional like the community in which they lived. Corinth was dysfunctional. They were dysfunctional. There was all these temples and worship of false gods and all kind of crazy stuff going on. There were temple prostitutes. That's kind of a weird thing. Can somebody say Amen. Crazy stuff going on. And so the response to a lot of that was going to an extreme of, uh, well, maybe the best thing is, is we just like don't even go anywhere near that. So people were saying, some were saying, maybe nobody should ever get married, be celibate your whole life, and, and just let's just stay away from that because that is evil. And they had this concept. It, it, a group of people are called the Gnostics. Gnostics, G-N-O-S. It, it relates to having knowledge, but they kind of saw life as being um, in a couple of ways. One physical, one spiritual. And physical or, or anything that was material was evil and spiritual was good. So refrain from anything that's physical, anything that's material, and just have this kind of euphoria experience where you're living in the clouds. That's the gist of it. So they said, maybe people should just never get married. They had written Paul to find out about his thoughts on this. And I think most commentators read the first verse something like this. And it's this way in the ESV. And I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty accurate as I study it. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then Paul says what the matters were in quotations. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. Um, but because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife. It's his response back to their statement now. And each woman her own husband. By the way, I'll come back to this passage in just a minute out of Genesis. Isn't it interesting that their philosophy was actually the opposite of what God ordained in Genesis chapter 2? What did God say in Genesis chapter 2? He looked at Adam and he goes, that guy needs some help. Pretty true of most men. That guy needs some help. I will create one for him. And so that was God's plan. 
yet the Corinthians, in their super spirituality, were saying, no, 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 no. Everybody just remains single, and that's going to be the best thing. It's kind of funny, different things of religion through the years, back in the Jewish days, to be um, considered a member in the, in the, in the synagogue and, and, and a member of the Sanhedrin, especially those kind of things, you had to be married. And then we came along later in the Catholic Church, and you can't be married. And so it's, it's even that way in some churches today. Like, you know, if, if, if we were going to hire someone to be one of our pastors here at the church and they're single, there are people all around who throw up red flags like, well, hold on, that might be a problem. Some churches never want to have like a single male as the youth pastor because what about, especially if they're young, what happens with the young ladies that are in the youth group and all? Oh, my goodness. And, and, you know, I'm not advocating for or against anything. I'm just saying it's interesting how we make up a bunch of rules that really aren't God's rules. We need to pray about everything. And by the way, I don't have time to go into it. Later on in this chapter, Paul's going to say that many have been given the gift of marriage, and that's a beautiful thing. And others have been given the gift of singleness, and that's a beautiful thing. There's not a one-size-fits-all. So whatever God has put in your life, rejoice in the provision he's given you. So he says here, let's go on with what's here. Uh, verse, verse three, I think I'm up to. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal. The word conjugal means pertaining to marriage, her marriage rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Some right there, some husbands go, yeah, that's exactly right. Stop reading too quick. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, now, here's what can happen right there. If we pursue our rights instead of our responsibilities, if we selfishly, like we talked about last week, look at what I want and we don't consider what our spouse wants and needs, then we're going to get to a stalemate real quick that will wind us up in a place of isolation, which is what I'm talking about today. Can I tell you that when you demand your rights, you're normally creating a problem? What is Paul talking about here? It's in your notes. It's in the black because it's not scripture. It's my thought. Mutual desire and effort to please each other should be our goal in marriage. When I talk to people who are getting married, and I got a couple that I'm going to do that with here in the next few weeks. When I talk to people that are getting married, I give them a few things that I think will help them, basic rules that if they will follow will help them. They're pretty simple. They're not hard. The first one is this. Make it your goal to make each other happy more than to make yourself happy. Then you will both share in happiness together. When I'm walking around entitled as if everybody has the responsibility to make me happy, I get upset and angry quite frequently. You got in my way. You kept me from doing what I wanted to do. You ordered the last sandwich, the, the one that I wanted. How dare you get in my way and take my spot? When I feel I'm entitled to, to my happiness more than anything else, I'm going to be disappointed frequently, and I'm going to become a grouchy old bear. That explains a lot of people right there. 
But when I'm trying to make other people happy, the good news is I get to share in that joy also. When my goal every morning I wake up is what can I do to make Janet happy? How can I bless her today? How can I improve her day? When I wake up saying that and when she wakes up thinking how can I make Bruce happy today? How can I improve his day? How many of you believe that's the environment of a great day? But too often, we're talking about these things and we're, we're, we're arguing over what's right for us. And Paul says that we don't have authority over our own lives, but we are to give that authority to our spouse. And together, mutually, we work to please each other. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. By the way, the word for agreement there is kind of interesting. In the Greek language is the word that we use for symphony. He says, the agreement that you have should be so incredible, it's like the symphony playing. Boy, that doesn't describe too many marriages, I don't think, unfortunately. Most of the time when there's agreement, there's like a dragon along, well, I guess so if I have to. Paul says our point of agreement should be so, now, now here's the beautiful thing about a symphony. It's even better than just the word Harmony. Harmony is a great thing. See, a lot of people think that in the church we should have unison. Unison gets very boring very quick. Unison is one note sung by a bunch of people together. There are places where it's really good. There are places where it's really nice. But almost always for unison to have its full impact, you got to break out in harmony. And then for harmony to have its really full impact, you got to get the symphony involved. And that's people doing totally different things, but all blending together for the same purpose of making a melodious sound. That is the description of the agreement we should have. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now look at what he says here. In verse 6, and I'm gonna, I got an outline we're going to get through in a minute. I want you to see this. When he says, do not deprive one. And he's talking about sexually, the sexual connection. That's the point here. Don't, don't, don't deprive. Don't, don't withdraw. Don't isolate. Don't separate for a long period of time. Except when it's by agreement. So that's the first point. For a limited time. That's the second point. For the purpose of prayer and spiritual growth, that's the third point. So that you'll come together again, that's the fourth point. So there's not supposed to be this, you know, we're, we're married, but we're never ever going to, to have any sexual connection, any physical connection, because, you know, we're just kind of past that in our life, doesn't fit anymore. Now, now I'm being real today. It's what Paul's talking about. I'm quoting his words here to you. There are changes that come in life. There are times when uh, it, it is a, a hotter fire than maybe other points in life. And there are a lot of reasons for that. He's not talking about what should be happening in your personal situation, but he's talking about a principle, a concept here that we do not withhold from each other and we don't use that as a bargaining chip or a punishment. It happens a lot. He 
he says it's important for us to recognize that physical intimacy is a reflection, an indicator of other levels of intimacy. Now, all of, the, all of these words are going to connect some principles to every relationship you have. And, and um, let me go through here and give you some thoughts and talk about the Greek words for love real quick. I'm going to go fast, and I'm going to try to stay on my notes because I could really get off easy today. There's a lot of material here. Paul just deals very directly with the importance of intimacy in marriage. How many would say amen to that? It wasn't too hard to figure out what he was saying right there, was it? Pretty clear. If you didn't understand, I tried to comment to help you get it very clearly. He speaks about the significance of sexual activity, secondly, and gives clear instruction due to the volatility of sexual activity outside of marriage. So... I want to clear up one thing I said last week. I probably should have done this earlier on. I'm kind of inserted it right now. Just a timeout. Let me go here. I talked about selfishness and how, how we kind of have strife one against another. And we kind of group with each other and whatever. And I don't want to be misunderstood or give the wrong impression. I think we should celebrate accomplishment for every group of people that have been um, prevented from having the success they should because of their gender or their skin color, or some other arena of life, whatever it is, we should celebrate when people have victory, when people win, when people have accomplishment and success, and we should not only cheer for the ones who look like us. And so we, we, we cheer and we rejoice when accomplishments are made. But if we're not careful, we build camps. And, and, and maybe it's just my perspective, but I hear people say things like this even. I, I, from my perspective, I think today as it comes to, to racial reconciliation, there are some people of all colors. So I'm not indicating any one person here who have absolutely no desire for that because they like to keep the pot stirring and they, they like to keep talking about, you know, all of the, I'm going to celebrate when people accomplish things regardless of their skin color, regardless of their gender, any other measurement of the outside part, you, I, I'm going to celebrate that. But let's not get selfish and just believe for the ones that are, 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 are like us. I want to make a second statement to you here today, not back from last week, but that parenthesis moment is out. Now we're back in the gear here. The Bible is very clear, and this is so contrary to our culture today. The Bible is very clear, God's plan as it relates to sexual activity. It is intended between a husband and a wife. It is a beautiful gift from God of intimacy that is not to be expressed in any other direction. Well, we love each other, but we're not married yet, or we're not going to get married because it'll change the way that our lifestyle operates. It'll change our income source. It'll do this, or it'll do that, and, you know, we're just not really going to go there, but we still love each other, so we think it's okay. Have you ever noticed that we have this tendency as humans to rationalize our sin? And... We struggle sometimes as Christians to, to 
communicate what we think is the word of God, what is truth, what the way we understand God's word, without being harsh, without being legalistic. And, and I don't think God's pleased with our legalism. That's a whole other sermon, a whole other topic, and it's about half the New Testament, by the way. He's not wanting us just to be these hard-nosed people that walk around the stick beating on people. But we have to stand for truth in love. And, and so, do we tell people they can't come in the building? Absolutely not. We welcome them. Do we stand up and all point, turn around and point a finger at somebody that's living a lifestyle that's not appropriate and that is contrary to the word of God? No, we let the Holy Spirit take care of that. See, I think sometimes in the Christian circles, we don't have enough confidence in the Holy Spirit. So we feel like we got to step in and take over because he may not get it done, but Holy Spirit, step back. I got it. Are you kidding me? We need to be doing the exact opposite. Because a lot of times we are in this category. How many of you can relate to me? I don't have a clue what to say right now, God. How many of you ever felt that way? So I'm going to step back and Holy Spirit, you do your work. It's, it's, more, it's, it, it, it's more, much more effective. But I want to be very clear that as a church, we believe in the word of God. We believe in the sanctity of marriage. We believe that when sex occurs outside of a marriage relationship, it is very volatile. Volatile is a word that means can change quickly, typically for the negative. Isn't it amazing that something that's done under the pretense of love, when it's not in the right environment, can, 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 can create so much anger and hostility. Think about, think about what the media portrays. They get this part right sometimes. When a person has the one night stand, and then they never talk to each other again, and then they bump into each other at the grocery store or wherever. Can somebody say, oh, Word. How is it that something that's intended to be such a point of intimacy now becomes a point of shame, anger? It's because it wasn't put in the right place. So I've used this illustration many times before, but, but just let me give it to you real quick again, and i got to get through some notes here. I knew this was going to happen today. I knew it was going to happen. I love fire when it's in the fireplace. I love fire when it's controlled in my house and brings heat in the winter. I love fire when it's on the stove and it heats our food. I don't like fire when it's on the carpet. I don't like fire when it's on the wall. I don't like fire when it's burning up furniture. Fire's not the issue. It's how is it being handled. Maybe a shocker for some of you, and I may be talking too blunt for some of you, but I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to ask you to grow up. God 
God created sex to be a beautiful expression of commitment between a husband and a wife. And we must guard that it stays in the right place lest something that would, was designed to be beautiful become something that is destructive. And if, if for whatever reason you're feeling stirrings of emotion for someone else that's out there and you think, I think they could make my life complete, can I just be like super, super blunt right now as if I haven't been already? You're an idiot. You are certifiable. You have such blinders on, you have no clue, and you're about to plunge into something that's going to destroy so many people in the wake. Well, it won't hurt anybody. That's such baloney. It's going to hurt a, a, a busload of people. It's going to do so much damage. Now, if you're here today and you've already made mistakes in your past, Here's something we all need to know in life. You can't change the past, but you can set the direction of your future. God knew that we needed companionship. He designed us that way, but sin came and brought separation. Now, the four words are there. You know them. You can look at them later. Let me move on. Isolation occurs, number one, when we feel hurt or neglected. We feel isolated or we move toward isolation because I feel like Janet did not treat me right. She did something against me. Therefore, I'm going to step away. Now, now here, here's the bad part of that. There, there, there's so many bad parts to that. Number one, when I do that, I'm not repairing anything. But the reality is, whatever is wrong I just made it worse. It, it, it would be like this. Let me give you a, a, a physical illustration of this. It would be like if you were eating food that had truly spoiled, had been left out, and it, it was bad. It was going to make you sick. It's awful. And you think to yourself, I'll just pour a little more salt on it. That'll help. When I say you hurt my feelings, therefore I'm pulling away from you, and I'm not going to talk to you. And I'm going to stay over here on my side. I made what was bad worse now. And I'll get to it in a minute because here's what happens. My imagination starts going wild. Let me tell you this. First of all, God is always working for reconciliation. In your notes here, you got Romans 5.10 that says, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Matthew 5.23.24 says, If you're bringing an offering to the altar... And on your way to the altar, you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there and then go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. <clears throat> All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Isolation occurs when we have unresolved conflict. Isolation happens because we feel like we're not being heard. God's plan for for us in all of our relationships is intimacy, not isolation. Now, by intimacy, I'm not, that's not a euphemism for sex, sexual activity. Whether it's, whether it's with our friends, you go back to the four words a while ago, our family, our friends, our coworkers, people that we're close to, he wants us to have close relationships with all of those people. Now, they look different in different places, and there's a special intimacy that is only for marriage. I've already talked about that. But God wants us to have intimacy in all of our relationships. He wants you to have good friends. He wants you to have a loving family. And by the way, the church is an extension of the family. He wants those things. Now, sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes people are jerks. Am I being real enough this morning? But you don't get a pass. You got to keep doing what's right. You got to keep working for it. You don't quit. You don't give up. You don't go try to find something to replace it. You keep working on the relationships God has put in your life because that is a picture of what God did for you. It's so easy for us to say we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like God. We want to be godly people. And, and I remember when I was a kid, when I would sing songs like to be like Jesus, and in my mind, I just thought that was like, I just walked around all day going, shalom. Shalom to you. Shalom, shalom. And I would just walk around, to be like Jesus, be so cool. And everybody like, shalom me back. And it'd just be this big shalom fest. It'd be so awesome. Peace everywhere. And then I realized, I'm reading, you know, it's like early teenager. And I'm reading, I'm like, oh, people got mad at Jesus. I didn't know I was signing up for that. People called him names, plucked his beard, nailed him to a tree. Wait, hold on. I kind of want to be like Jesus a little bit, but not too much. We pursue godliness. It's a biblical command, correct? How does God act? How should we act? God kept reaching out to us. Romans 5, 10, I read it a while ago, that when we were enemies with God, he reconciled us through the blood of Jesus. Here's the reality. When we push for our rights, we create the environment of isolation when we aren't understanding, when we aren't compassionate, when we're demanding and when we're selfish and we demand my rights, I create an environment of isolation because nobody will want to be around me. There's a lot of talk been through the years and whatever, and I appreciate all the respect that, that you give me so abundantly and, and, and beyond anything I could ever deserve. But there are some pastors, I'm just kind of going here for a second. 
talking about demanding rights or whatever. I, we, I, I drove by this church just like Friday. It's kind of a smaller building, whatever. And the very front parking spot, parking lot has probably like 23 parking spots, okay? Not a big church. But right up by the very front, it, they had a sign on the, the place there that said, this spot reserved for the pastor. If you park here, in smaller print, if you park here, you will answer to a higher authority. I got to be honest. I wanted to get out and go rip that sucker off the wall. Are you kidding me? Now, I got a place here where I park my car because it's by the back door of my office, and I park there. And I'm not saying this to brag on me. Brother Lambert, you know it well. When we were doing the construction and we were meeting in the gym, I went to Pastor Lambert. And I see, my parking spot's not that good for most of you because you had to walk all the way around. I mean, if you want it, let me know, and I'll let you park there one week and see if it changes your life. I doubt it, but we'll give it to you. <laughs> When we were meeting in the gym, there's a door right there. It's glass now. We took that door out. But there was a door right there, and I said to Brother Lambert, I said, Pastor, while we're meeting in the gym, would you just park here in my spot? I can park somewhere else. Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm selfish as much as anybody. But God helped me to get it right occasionally. When you demand your rights, you put yourself in a place of isolation. Man, God did not call you to be the the head of your home as a dictator, but as the lead servant. To love your wife, to love your children, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. When we fulfill our responsibility, then we create the environment of intimacy. Here's the problem with isolation. It grows into bitterness and it destroys intimacy. When we feel neglected, what do we often do? We throw up barriers that prevent what we need and what we want so desperately. But we get mad, so rather than trying to fix it, we throw a wall up and say, okay, come over that wall. And things just get worse. The problem there, too, is, I started to mention a while ago and I'm coming back to it now, your mind can cause the imagination to loom over reality. Anybody ever do, you don't have to raise your hand. We've all done it. Somebody we're mad at, <clears throat> it might be a spouse, it might be a coworker, it might be a friend, and, and we start making up the story. A couple of weeks ago, they talked about the lies we tell ourselves when, when the Fullertons were here last week. Before long, we've worked up this story. Oh, they did it on purpose. They're probably telling everybody they did it. They, they meant to hurt me, and they don't even have a clue what we're thinking. Because we don't talk, we build walls. You hurt me, you damaged me, I feel bad, so I'm going to throw up a barrier and you'll never get through. And our imagination never seems to work as well as when we're projecting into the future when we've been hurt. It becomes a disastrous vision. When isolation sets in, we become distant spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. It touches everything. God's design for our relationship becomes marred. In Genesis chapter 2, it says what God's design was. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And I wish that we all understood Hebrew because that's a beautiful phrase right there. 
I don't understand it as well as I would like to, but I looked it up and studied it. And when it says, I will make a helper fit for him, it's this picture of something that goes together like two pieces of a puzzle and they fit together right and they bring completion. When God created Eve, she created him out of his side. You've heard this. I've shared this hundreds of times in weddings and in different places. It was from his side, not from his feet to be trampled by him, not from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be his equal and to be loved by him. Intimacy can be restored with intentional choices. Listen, you don't grow close accidentally. You know, we were really struggling for a while, and I don't know what happened. We just got better. I don't think so. No, we intentionally determined to improve our relationship. And the other thing is, the flip side of that coin is this. No one shows isolation on purpose. It just happens because we don't deal with it right. We don't fix the problem. We don't confess where we're, we're wrong. And the first thing to do if you're going to choose to restore intimacy in any relationship, particularly with our husbands and wives today, but this is with friends, with coworkers, inside the church, wherever it's at, whoever you have a relationship, choose to take responsibility for your role in the problem. I'm sorry. Well, it was a hard word for some people to say. I'm sorry for what I did. Create, secondly, a foundation of security. Be a person of consistency. Can people count on you to be there? Second, be a person of availability. Will you spend time with them? Will you help them? Third, reliability. Let them know they can count on you if they need something. Responsiveness. Get back with them. Now, look, none of us are perfect. And by the way, this isn't for you to use on somebody else. It's for you to use on you. Some of you already had eight people lined up. You were going to straighten out after church. Okay, look in the mirror first. Predictability. Can you count on them to do something in a certain way, to act the same way every time? You ever have those people you never know? How short the fuse is today? Are they going to blow up? Are they going to be okay? What's going on? You need to work on being predictable. People know that they can trust that when they talk to you, they'll get the same kind of response every time. Another thing, choose to accept and appreciate your spouse. It's amazing how we have a tendency to demand or to expect perfection from those who are closest to us more than from anybody else. We'll overlook faults and flaws in other people's lives, but if our spouse or our kids or someone that we love that's close to us just makes a little mistake, oh man, it's my time to, my time to shine. God help us to be appreciative and accepting and embracing. You know, in, in Genesis 2, one of the things that Adam did when God created Eve, he got excited. I mean, you can read it however you want to, but he's excited. And he accepted her. He's like, this is great. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Before she was created, all he had were the animals. 
Now he had somebody that was like him, from him. Wow, what a game changer. Choose to build closeness spiritually. Can I give you a tip on your marriage? One way to improve, I told you one while ago, make each other happy. Here's a second one. Pray together. Let me help you out. Here's how you pray. It can be quick. It can be 30 seconds or so. Pray a prayer of appreciation or gratitude and pray a prayer of blessing. If you go for that, that's fine. I've told you this story, and I won't belabor it, but, you know, sometimes people say they're going to pray. I'm not really sure what their prayer is going to be, and I may not want what they're going to say. Sometimes people pray like this, God, you know what a knucklehead he is, and just straighten him out, give him a good kick, get a hold of him, God, beat him up before I do. Now, here's how we pray over our kids, how we pray over our, our spouse. God, I thank you. God, I thank you for Janet, for the years that we've had together and the blessing she's been in my life, all the positive things that I've experienced because you brought us together. And then you do a prayer of not just gratitude, but blessing. And I pray today that you'll be with her this week, that you'll give her strength, that your spirit will surround her, and that you'll help me to do the things that I can do to make her life good. When you pray that prayer every day for each other, I'm just telling you, it'll make your day a whole lot better. It'll make your week a whole lot better. Pray together. It's not just spiritual, though. It's emotional, relational, physical. Laugh together. Enjoy life. Always love. Always accept. Always respect. Create a safe place where your spouse let me go beyond the other relationships. I'm talking primarily about spouses today in marriage, but where your friends know that they can count on you, that when they're around you, they're not walking on eggshells. They're not having to fear what's going to happen or what's he going to say or what's she going to do. Choose to believe the best. Love always protects, always trusts, always hope, always perseveres. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 7 in the NIV. Choose to reflect God's character in your relationship. Here it is, four words. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. Near, close, near. Closeness saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on his name. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. Remember that you are at that time, separated from Christ. I love how Paul just dogpiles on this one. He doesn't just go, yeah, you were kind of outside the camp. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and no God. In other words, he's saying, loser. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of that, we reflect that in all of our relationships. We are quick to reconcile. We are quick 
to strengthen. We are quick to draw near. We don't want to throw up a wall of division. Come on, let's be honest. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. But let's stop. Let's tear down the wall. Later on, if you read more of Ephesians chapter 2, that's exactly what it says that has happened spiritually. It's what God wants to do in our lives too. Let there be no division between the people of God. But let our hearts be brought together to accomplish his will. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? I want to pray for you. Then we're going to take communion together, celebrating the reconciliation we have through Christ. Who would be here today? This is going to be really quick. But who would say, first of all, I need to be reconciled with God. There's something between us. I'm not close to him, but I want to be brought near to him today. Would you raise your hand all over the building? I want to be close to God. I want to be near. I want to be a friend of God. Yes. How many others? Yes. I want to be brought near to God. How many of you would say there's a relationship in my life? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it is your spouse or your children. But there's something in your life where there is a, a division, a separation, an isolation. And you just want to say, Holy Spirit, I think you know how to handle this better than me. I'll do whatever you prompt me to do. But I want you to be involved in helping me to have reconciliation in my family with my friends. Would you raise your hand all across the room? Yes, yes, many people. Father, I pray right now that you would help us to hear your word and respond to it in obedience. May we understand the importance of intimacy and closeness. May we be vulnerable, may we be transparent, may we be authentic. May we not hide behind a facade of how we want people to see us, but may we be truthful and real. Lord, I pray for everyone that raised a hand today. God, you know. You know what needs to be done, and you know what's going on. And we lean into you right now, Lord, and we ask that you would accomplish your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.